Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are joined by Emma Lindley, a digital identity expert, a co-founder of Women in Identity, and above all, one of the coolest person that you'll see on social. Just follow her on, on Twitter and you'll know what we're talking about. So Emma, you have been at GBG, started and exited a startup. You were head of identity and risk at Visa and so on and so forth. And on top of all else, you co-founded Women in Identity. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what got you interested in digital identity. So thanks very much for um, having me on. Um, I mean, I suspect just like most people that work in digital identity, I didn't, you know, set out to work in digital identity. Um, I uh, started to work at a, a company when it was it's 18 years ago now, uh, which is GB Group um, now, the identity company. And um, the CEO at the time, they had a you know they had a bunch of data about UK um, individuals, so things like the electoral roll, the postcode address file, um, and the CEO at the time uh, got a small group of us to, together. Um, there was about sort of five of us, and and he sort of was like, you know, I think that there's going to be quite a big thing to do with identity in the future. Um, can you take some of the some of the assets that we've got, some of the data that we've got, some of the technology that we've got, and go and build something that might work for identity fraud in the future? And so when we think back to when that actually was, that was like 2002, 2003. Um, so our first, uh, this will probably make you both laugh. So that our first um, minimum viable product was on a CD-ROM. And it was called Authenticator. Everyone's nodding. <laughs> um, so it's called Authenticator. Um, and um, and yeah, and that was our minimum viable product. And effectively what we did, we, we looked at the uh, know your customer process that financial services firms had to do. And at the time, that was pretty much all manual, people having to go into bank branches and present documents and all that type of thing. And we were like, well, can we take some of the data that we've got and try and replicate that process electronically. And so that's effectively what we did. Um, and we then we kind of took this CD-ROM around a few of the banks and people were like, that's kind of interesting. If you could kind of do that electronically, that would speed things up for us somewhat. Um, and then we went and did a joint venture with British Telecom in the UK. So we then took our MVP, we stuck it into a web services environment Again, pretty new, um, you know, they had a set of APIs, they built a web wrapper around um, our technology. Um, and then we were able to start serving that that out as a, an API driven um, KYC, electronic KYC process. And there weren't really any players in the market space at the time. Um, you know, there was the credit referencing agencies in the UK, um, there was Experian and there was Equifax. Um, Call Credit, which is now TransUnion in the UK, had just come to market. Um, so the space was pretty much wide open, really. And, and that's kind of how I got into it. And I've just I mean, it's just such a interesting, exciting, um, expanding place. Um, and so here I am kind of like, you know, 18 years later. And I think if you'd asked me then, you know, so you're going to be here in you know, 18, 20 years time doing the same thing. I probably would have said to you, well, no, because we will have solved that whole identity thing. That's going to be fixed. 
and I would have moved on to doing something else. Um, and so it's even, you know, it's fascinating for me, really, when I look back and kind of go, you know, we've we've come a long way, but actually we haven't come that far, really. Um, you know, those systems that we built back then are still being used in the majority in places like the UK and the US today, that model. I, I believe that because I, I remember um, I left in the UK back around 2005 and I was working on a project with BT. We were looking at the customer journey across multiple BT products, whether, you know, you're um, at that time an internet customer or you were a telephone okay. customer and whatnot. And there were completely separate sets of customer identity. And they don't talk to each other and we're trying to help them figure out how you can create a cohesive relationship across so many products when they're all siloed and yeah. fast forward however many years now 15 16 years later i feel like a lot of these fundamental problems like what you were saying about identity still has not been solved for the most part no i think i think we um i mean it's interesting about technology, isn't it? You, you know, we, we kind of um, fall romantically in love with, um, you know, new technologies, and we think that, that they're going to be the silver bullet. And it just takes a long time, you know, it takes a long time for these things to evolve. And when, I, you know, when people kind of talk about things like blockchain and say, well, you know, everything's going to be decentralized. And, you know, you know, I always kind of go, well, people have still got cash. And we said cash was gonna cash was gonna you know die out and and so these things just take a long time to evolve and even you know the pandemic we we look at pe people are still still using cash you know I paid somebody with cash today right so even a pandemic has has not managed to to kind of kill off cash so um, I think it's going to take a, a long time you know these things take a long time to evolve and um, you know not least the the user experience and people's comprehension of technology and you know how we get technologies to be inclusive and make sure that people can you know understand them and comprehend them and use them that takes generations i think you know the the conversation around identity you know from a banking perspective or a fintech perspective is is certainly different i think than the people that are impacted by having that identify that identity um when i was at santander we invested in secure which was trying to digitize the alm and kyc stack we invested in elliptic which was trying to identify the individuals doing uh, crypto trades and you know it's it's one thing to solve for for banks or it's one thing to solve for fintechs but there are hundreds of millions of people across the world who don't have an identity card, who don't have a birth certificate, who don't have a passport, who don't have any sort of digital or physical way to sort of prove who they are, where they came from. And that has huge sort of discrepancies in society. So what are some of the, the benefits then that a digital ID can bring to more individuals? How do you look at that? Um, I mean, there's a there's a huge amount of benefits that digital identity um, can can have, um, and there there are huge ways of people that you know don't have the baseline to be able to prove their identity to even get into you know get into a point where they could have a digital identity with some kind of level of of trust behind it. Um, there's about a billion people that you know can't currently prove their identity, and I think the the interesting thing is we we um, 
people often talk about that being an issue, you know, in, you know, they'll often go, well, that, you know, that's an issue in countries in Africa, for example. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of work in a lot of different countries looking at some of the issues and the impact of, of exclusion. Um, but it's an, it's an impact in the UK where I'm based. You know, we have um, a lot of people in the UK that don't have passports and driving licences. Um, and so it's about 15% actually within that Venn diagram that don't have a passport and a driving license. Um, so, you know, there's about 25% of people that don't have a passport, 25% of people that don't have a driving license. And the Venn diagram between those two is about 15%. And that's actually quite a lot of people. You know, when you, you think about the UK and people go, oh, the UK, you know, it should be a solved thing, but it isn't even in the UK. And so, um, when we think about the the benefits of of actually being able to get you know all of those people included there's a huge financial potential gdp growth benefit um so that you know we, we would be able to get those people um being able to do things within the economic world um you know they'd be able to be using financial services um, and so when we look at some of the statistics around that mckinsey have done um, a study and that um, they've kind of plotted and they've said, well, you know, across all of the countries, um, it's anywhere between a three and 13% GDP growth for a country to be able to get everybody a digital identity because that allows them then to get accesses, access to all these other services. It also takes stacks of paper out of the process, you know, um, and so for things like governments, for example, they're not having to employ, you know, huge amounts of people who are pushing paper around. So there are lots of benefits in in doing it um, and that range between three and 13 percent um it depends on the level of digitization of that particular country so for somewhere like the uk it's about three percent in one of you know particularly like with the african countries um you know you're looking at something more like 13 percent because you have less people actually be able to to kind of um you know have digital means anyway um and you kind of look at that and go, well, it's a McKinsey study, maybe, you know, how much how much is kind of weight is behind that. But when you look at what's happened in Estonia, Estonia have um, their digital identity uh, scheme, which is X-Road. Um, and they've reported that it's um, it's a two percent GDP growth. So they've actually been able to track it because they've got people, pretty much everybody who's got a digital identity in Estonia. Um, and. I mean, that's the same size of as their entire NATO contribution. So it's a big impact. You know, when you think about like that as a country, it's a it's a huge impact in terms of GDP growth and it makes a big impact to their economic you know, benefit. And, and I would guess that COVID has strengthened the case for digital IT idea as well, isn't it? Because of government funds, disbursement and everything else, it makes it a little easier. Hopefully that, you know, with the infrastructure that they can, they can get um, the necessary economic benefits through to all the citizens. Because that's one of the things that, um, Brad, didn't we talk about that in, in a previous episode, as we look back at, for example, the United States, where we also have a, an, an equal challenge, if you will, of of getting people um, with with a bank account or or anything else of that nature that we actually have to send out paper checks for people yeah. to get their benefits. Yeah. Now imagine if we can actually put that digitally, that would have been so much easier and faster. 
Yeah, so no, I think um, absolutely it has accelerated the focus on digital ID, um, you know, because, I mean, and the same happened in the UK, you know, we, we suddenly went, oh, COVID's hit, we need to get you know, loans out to people, loans out to companies, uh, ind more individuals because they've lost their jobs, they need to be claiming benefits in the UK. Um, and because we didn't have that digital identity infrastructure, that posed a huge amount of challenges for, for people in the UK. You know, I, I know people that are working in government and there was a big scramble to go, well, we don't have a way of people proving their identity easily. And that's a real challenge. Um, so I think it, it has done that. And we've got all of these businesses now having to do things online. Uh, so, you know, even if you think about buying a car, for example, people couldn't go in to show their documents, you know, their passports and their driving licenses to prove their identity in a showroom. They had to do that electronically. Um, I think the, the other thing that's happened is, you know, we've also seen this thing coming in of people going, well, we want people to be able to prove they've been vaccinated. Um, and so I think it's it's strengthened the case, but it's also really kind of at the same time kind of derailed it um, because we've then got this kind of this other thing of saying, well, you know, we, we need to be able to prove that people have been vaccinated. There's this big rush to do it. Um, and we've got, you know, issues around where and I think there is there is a risk, um, quite a significant risk of countries trying to rush to go, well, we're going to kind of have this system where people have got these vaccine certificates or, and I don't like the term vaccine passports, um, but when they don't have the infrastructure in place to, to, to have inclusion, um, it could mean that people are further excluded. So I'll give you a for example, in the UK we have, um, and that's where I'm based, so I'll, I'll give you that example. The UK, we have the NHS, so everybody can get a vaccination. Um, but then if you try and digitise those and go, well, we're going to turn those into a digital form and people are then going to be able to prove they have to show this digital form to be able to then fly or go into a restaurant. Not everybody has a smartphone in the UK. 11% of people can't turn on a device. And so when you start to think about those aspects of it, we start to go, well, actually, this could end up being quite exclusionary. So uh, there's been two those two things that have happened this year, and we've kind of had this this other big thing coming in that the, and I think there's been some of the identity community have kind of jumped on that as being a use case. And I, I kind of look at it and go, I don't think this is the right use case because we are in the middle of a in the middle of a crisis. And so when we look at you know somewhere like India, for example, not everybody can get an adhar. Um, and for various reasons, so blind people, for example, really struggle to get an adhar. And I saw an article only a few weeks ago saying, well, we're going to link, people are going to have to have an adhar to be able to get a vaccination. And I'm like, that is, this is not the right timing to do that because um, we are in the middle of a crisis. And so th there, there's a lot of people in our community kind of thinking about that as well, particularly when we think about things like privacy and human rights. When you when you think about the ad hire system and biometrics and sort of that divide, whether it's ten percent or twenty percent or thirty percent or even more that don't have the capability to have a smartphone, are we going to get to a place where, 
you know, it's in the UK or the US where that 11% in the UK will have a either biometric or another way to sort of secure their identity or in the US where, you know, we even have a word around undocumented, but it's so political and has so many other things sort of weighted upon it. But that's really still what we're talking about is this inability for people to prove who they are for their benefits, their credit, their mon monetary, you know, sort of um, history to be brought along with them if they are forced to move. Uh, when are we going to get there to this point where more people will be included? And what's it going to look like, you think? So I think, um, uh, I mean, I um, the UK have government have just, um, they've got a new digital identity trust framework. Um, and trust framework is just a fancy word for, you know, a kind of scheme uh, where it's got, you know, kind of a liability model and a commercial model and all of those types of things in it. Um, but it effectively allows lots of actors within, um, you know, within a particular scheme to trust each other, a bit like the payment schemes. Um, and the this is the second the UK government's second time around this block. So we had a thing called GovUK Verify. Um, only 40% of people were getting through Verify, for between 40 and 60% of people, dependent on, um, and, and that's not success in anybody's book. Um, so they've kind of come around and they've now got this um, trust framework. Um, we at Women in Identity, we've, because that is a lot of the work that we do, we talk about from the inside of our industry, the need for having inclusion built into our products and thinking about diversity by design and making sure that the products that um, are being built for everybody are being built with everybody in mind and by everybody. Um, and one of the things that they have um, started to think about in that trust framework is an idea of vouching. Um, so where somebody there's a you know trusted individual that might be you know a doctor um, that might be uh, you know a solicitor, they would vouch for somebody that can't currently prove their identity. Um, and then there will be some kind of baseline in which somebody could then start to build upon that digital identity. Um, now, in the UK, you know, we we would probably stand a better chance of people having some digital means to be able to do that. Um, you know, some kind of basic smartphone or something along those lines. Um, and so that's uh, that's one of the ways. And and you know, when we look at the vouching uh, methodology, you know, kind of people might be like, oh, we're going backwards. But we have to really start thinking about how we're going to take people on a journey because um, and I genuinely, you know, don't think I think it's going to be at least 10 years, you know, before we start to see that. And again, it's this whole thing around technology and generations and people understanding what's actually happening um, and people being able to be familiar with devices and, you know, understanding that, you know, they need to do a selfie when they're you know doing their biometric. And so. All of that takes a huge amount of of user understanding, and I don't think, you know, and I think it ta it takes every it takes a village uh, to make these things work. It you know it's going to be the banks having to educate users. It it it's you know it's going to have to be the digital identity community kind of not talking about things in such you know smoke and mirrors kind of technical terms. You know we have to simplify these things for people for them to understand it. Um, and we also have to bake a lot of things in, you know, we still kind of, you know, I see, I see what, you know, when things will come through from my bank and they're like, well, we're going to do this thing called 2FA. And I'm like, who knows what 2FA is? I mean, I know what 2FA is, you know, but I, I mean, just, just, my dad wouldn't know what 2FA is. 
So I think we have to start stop using jargon. Um, you know, we need to learn. We need to learn our lesson really, and and kind of put things in a more simplistic form. And I think that's when we will start to get users understanding technology better, because otherwise we're just going to leave. We're going to leave swathes of people behind, which is exactly what we're doing right now. We're leaving them behind. Yeah. So um, you mentioned this a little bit. Uh, the women in the identity group that that you co-founded and the digital identity community that you're part of um that you're very active in what are some i'm really curious because we didn't touch on this earlier what prompted you to to create that group right and what are some of the remit that you have and what are some of the thoughts that you want the community needs to be mindful of um so we, I mean, we started Women in Identity um, about four years ago. Um, so it was, um, I mean, then we we ran it as a uh, minimum viable product for about two years, um, really just trying to understand and find out from the community um, what they wanted Women in Identity to be and what it should be. Um, and we, we started it because there are so many groups in our industry. We're like typical tech industry, you know, financials, fintech industry. We, you know, um, there's lots of underrepresented groups in that industry. Um, you know, the, the, and there is a, a dominant group in that industry. Um, and dominant, you know, dominant in terms of, you know, tend to be quite tech savvy. Uh, you know, would tend to be male, would tend to be white, um, would tend to be from a, uh, you know, reasonably wealthy socioeconomic background. And so I think, you know, that we there was there was that behind it and going, you know, should we have a women in group? There's lots of other women in groups. Why? Why would we have one within the digital identity industry? Um, but also because, you know, we need to have when we think about digital identity, it is the gateway and identity generally it's the gateway to other services. You need to have prove your identity to be able to open a bank account. You need to be able to prove your identity now, potentially for things like healthcare. You need to be able to prove it to get access to government services. So if we have, you know, homogenous teams building products at that layer, what we risk run a very high degree of risk of, of is bias um, within those groups. And not because anyone wakes up in the morning and says, oh, you know, I want to build a really crappy product. Um, you know, that's going to block a load of people from being able to use it. But just because, you know, we, we are all biased, um, we've all got it built in. And so the, the, the risk within building that into the identity layer is we're then going to make that exclusionary so that people will, people can't get identity. And so they're never going to get a bank account, you know. So we really have to in our industry, I kind of look at it and go, it's really important in other industries, but it is so important in our industry, so critical that we're thinking about that position of bias. So um, so that's, I mean, why we started the group, we ran it as an MVP, we then um, started it as a non-profit. Um, and one of the things that we are doing is we're, we're working on a code of conduct at the moment. Um, everybody that's a volunteer within Women Identity works within the industry. And so we're trying to work with the industry. Um, we're trying to affect change from within um, and trying to give the industry practical steps in which they can go and think about, you know, really tough things like potentially like bias. 
So we're drafting, a, uh, working on a code of conduct at the moment and a implementation framework that you can give to product managers and they can actually go and build better products because they're starting to at least think about their potential position of bias and then how they might mitigate it. Um, and that's the reason why we started it. I mean, we have, um, we now have, um, we've got volunteers in about 15 different countries. Um, we've got about 1,800 members and we've only actually been going since June 2019. So kind of tells you how other people, people think it's important as well. Um, yeah, and that's really the story. Well, and I, I think, you know, when you, you break apart identity, um, it's so much sort of bigger than just, this is who I am. You know, this is proving who I am and where I came from. And the, the things that kind of get in your way when you're not able to identify yourself, not just within sort of the financial services system, but for all the services that we can uh, have access to the, the future, um, of everyone having a proper identity and everyone yeah. having access equally is going to be so critical. And do you see other use cases sort of beyond things like um, cross-border interoperability uh, or other ways that your group and others can help the various industries to which identity is beholden into um, sort of public services? What are the ways are we going to see identity evolve to be more inclusive? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, you've talked about um, interoperability. I think, I mean, there's a, there's a number of frameworks that are trying to work on that. So um, there's a European framework um, where they've been trying to make it easy for people to be able to use digital identities um, from one country um, and then just turn up at another country um, and be able to access government services instantly. You know, I talked to a, a lot of, uh, you know, my American friends in the UK, they're like, I turned up here and I could do nothing. Um, and so, you know, that that's the kind of thing in, in which, you know, if you can make things interoperable, um, and, and that's not just at a technical level. And the interesting thing is people kind of talk about this as being, you know, the, a technical field. Um, and I kind of go, the technical bits, actually the 10%, the 90%, is the tough stuff. And that's where you go getting the policies to work, getting liability models to work. So, you know, if I had a digital identity from the US, um, the UK would have to recognize that at a certain type of level. Now, when we think about identity and how it's built from the bottom up, so US, we've got a social security number, we've got a bunch of data over here in the US, that's different to the way that the UK is. Um, you know, we've got passports and driving licenses and the electoral rolls are slightly different. So how do two governments trust each other? So I think the interoperability piece, the technical bit is not the hard part. The, 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 other, the other stuff is the really hard part. Um, and so I think that's, that will continue to be a, a really big challenge. Um, I think the pandemic will will probably accelerate some of that work because if you think about it, we have the same problem with uh, vaccination certificates. So how do how does um, somebody um, who's got I don't know you know the Russian Sputnik they've had that vaccination? How does that get recognised in the states, for example? You know, do you say well we're not going to recognise it, we're not going to accept it? I don't know. So I think. Um, 
the pandemic has kind of accelerated a lot of that thinking and a lot of that work. And I think that is going to be one of the continual, continual challenges. In terms of the use cases, um, I mean, I can't, when I kind of think about it, I think all of the use cases are there. I think one of the things we will potentially see is people taking people who understand the technology um, and understand, you know, have a, a good comprehension of things. They will probably start to move potentially towards more models where they're slightly more user centric. Um, and users perhaps potentially have, you know, there's this phrase self-sovereign identity. Um, so I think there is a model there where users may be able to have, you know, a bit more control over their data in a different way that might be through their smartphone. Um, but I always go kind of go back to this. Um, that takes quite a lot of user comprehension and user understanding to do that. So how quickly that will happen, um, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be slower than the self-sovereign community would like it to be. So I really want to extend on, on the data privacy part because that is such an important topic, but I feel that we might need to leave that for the next uh, podcast. We need to do, we need to find a way to do that. But before we end, we have a little bit of an inside joke that I, want to make sure we include and throw in. When we talk about identity, we talk about, I have a question, it's not a trick question, and maybe we should dedicate this to Louise and, and Lita. How can we tell the difference between an English cucumber, a garden cucumber, or a Persian cucumber? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> That in itself, my friends, will be the cucumber identity, perhaps the next project that the team can work on. And with that, thank you so much for joining us today, Emma. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.